0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: The TalkSport Daily podcast is proud to be in partnership with Enterprise Rent a Car. I'm Jared Kimber, and you're listening to The
2: Dive. This week, part two of Does Sport Really Matter? I'm Jared Kimber, and this is a new show on TalkSport called The Dive. Every week, The Dive will be a platform where we, and you, can take a deep dive into a specific sports topic. We start with a question, and end with an answer. And together, we find out a lot of surprises along the way. Last Sunday, we asked, does sport really matter? And we're continuing to ask that today, because it turns out that simple question has a lot of answers. Let's hear a bit of what we've learned.
3: I lost my mind. I lost my professional dignity. I lost whatever personality I might have been trying to project on the radio. We're all acting slightly, aren't we? Um, and went completely and utterly bonkers.
4: Yes! Yes! Yes!
5: Ah! David Beckham has scored! England have got the goal!
6: If someone said to me, if you wear a Chelsea shirt, I'll donate £1,000 to charity, I would not wear a Chelsea shirt. We've all got that ancient craving for belonging, haven't we, whether we're wearing
7: a, a red shirt or a blue shirt. The club's identity becomes part of us, so we passionately defend our team at any cost.
5: Live Sport particularly, is exciting because it's uncertain. and we invest ourselves into it, you know, we're, we're following our team. I think this is why a lot of people get sort of more of an emotional kick out of betting often. You know, there's a biochemical hit that you get from it. I mean, it's not probably the same degree as adrenaline sports, extreme sports, but it's our own little version
4: of that. And I remember a friend of mine who didn't really realize this about me. We're very, very good friends, but he knew that I'd get upset, but he took me to Watford, we're playing Chelsea. And we went together, and uh, Watford, Chelsea were expected to win, of course, and Watford went 1 0 up. And I just lost it. And uh, on the way back, I was in such a bad mood. And he looked at me, I could see him looking at me, thinking, this place completely mad.
2: So that was Talk Sports Andy Jacobs, Danny Kelly, and my co host John Norman, as well as psychologist and former cricketer Jeremy Snape, and sport mental skills guru Simon Hartley as we tried to find out if sport really matters.
6: So, in short, we learnt a lot. You talked about spittle that flew unintentionally out of your mouth whilst you were abusing those nice New Zealand cricketers. That, I suppose, showed passion. Danny Kelly revealed the pain of watching Spurs lose made him walk away from the game for six years. The psychotherapist told us that watching sport fires off endorphins in the brain. I suppose that explains the addictive qualities it brings. And even Jonathan Lou from The Guardian popped up. In short, there was a lot. And if you want to hear more, well, download the TalkSport Daily podcast or tweet Jared at a. Jared Kimber or me at Fulham John. We can help you out. Jared, at the start of episode two, what else is there to discuss?
2: Well, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called religion, um, but we've decided to have a look at that. This is from the trailer of series two of Sunderland Till I Die. This club recently went 12 months without winning a single game here.
5: Football club being sustainable is integral to the happiness of the entire city. This is what stops people crying in church.
4: Dear Lord, help Sunderland. because the success of our team leads to the success and prosperity of our city. Arms. <laughs>
6: oh. Let
4: us pray for Sunderland Football
6: Club and for our city. They always say, don't they, that football is a religion and. I mean, is it a religion? I suppose you can be brainwashed in the same way that religion works. If you're told something as a kid, from the moment you're born, take my son for instance, He he's three years old and he already knows that when I say Chelsea, he has to boo. I've already started brainwashing my own child into believing something that actually doesn't, it's not real, but that's how sport works. It's all about Warping and changing people from a very early age into believing something that isn't true. And some would say, you would as an atheist, I would as an agnostic, but people who are religious would totally not agree. I'd say that there's definite links with religion.
2: Yeah, I mean, it does feel a little bit like this is the uh, part where we're in the matrix and we realise we're all batteries.
6: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) probably. But we we take it so seriously it is part of the framework of our lives we do believe that our club is special and everyone else's clubs isn't so maybe it is like a religion
2: this is from a tom brady project
1: spirituality means a lot of different things to different people and i think for me it's your
2: deepest purpose what are you willing to give up to be the best you can be
8: Someone is out there
6: working really hard and they're working to beat me.
1: I'm not a player that's just gonna come and go. I'm here to be an all-time great.
2: You need something that brings your community together. And there are a lot of places that that's church, but for this part of the world, your church is on Saturday night. The right way. If I were to be a religious person, this would be like going
5: to the cathedral.
2: So there, you, well you heard from a bunch of big name athletes, Tom Brady at the top, Serena Williams is in there, Kobe Bryant. Even if you factor in how seriously America take well pretty much everything that they talk about even if if we do think about this as a business and, uh, you know, and ourselves as the batteries that sort of run it and as a distraction, there's no doubt that for a lot of us there is a religious aspect or at least let's take maybe religion, but there's a spiritual aspect to this, is there not?
6: Well yeah, possibly I'd like to hear someone who actually believes in God say that though.
2: Have you ever heard of Andrew Wingford Digby? Uh, No. Obviously he didn't watch a lot of first class cricket in the 70s and 80s but he went on to become the spiritual advisor to the England cricket team.
6: So the England team had a spiritual advisor?
2: Yeah, that is weird. But let's just move on for a moment. I, I don't know if I've ever told you this. I actually used to pray while I played tennis when I was young. So I was about 11 or 12. I had a break point opportunity for me or against me. So I would look up and pray. That's how seriously I took all that sort of stuff at that time.
6: Spoken like a true atheist. It
2: was on the tennis court that I realized probably, you know, my dodgy backhand had more to do with my ability to win the next point than any divine intervention. But Andrew Wingford Digby does get it. You know, he's a minister in the Church of England and a former athlete. You see a parallel between sort of people who worship on a Sunday and those who who go on and follow their sporting teams.
4: Using your sporting gift to the glory of God is an act of worship. If you have a musical gift, then the church recognises that immediately as being something that can be used for worship. If, like me, you can bowl an away swinger that occasionally cuts back a bit, it isn't so obviously uh, a worshipful gift. But I actually think if you surrender those gifts to the Lord Jesus and seek to honour God in the way you play, it is an act of worship to use your God-given gifts uh, for him.
6: Well, yeah, that's interesting, but it's not quite what we're talking about, is it? No, but I'll be honest, and a waist swinger that cuts back is a really
2: good ball-to-bowl. Um, so let's praise him in his 96 first-class wickets before listening to the rest, and not just to the word uh, idolatry, which he will use a lot. And what about those people who, who worship a football team or a cricket team or a rugby team over religion? Do, those sorts of people, it's almost like religion has taken over. Uh, sorry, well, sport is yeah, No, over. I think
4: it is a it is a substitute, but I mean... You know, all through the history of religion and through the writing of the Bible, idolatry has been one of the basic sins of mankind. So, worshiping a a god that is not a true god, i.e., your football team, is idolatry. You're, you're, you may be you may be following a human instinct to worship something, but you are worshiping uh, something that is a false god.
6: Whoa So he actually says sport is a religion. He actually agrees with that. Um... And actually, he doesn't sound too happy about it either.
2: No. uh, The Bible's pretty clear on this kind of thing, John. Uh, I think it's on page 17, near thou shalt not throw in the fourth down, but he does go on. And and do you think there are people out there who treat sport like it is a religion?
4: (laughs) I don't think many people think about it very much, but uh, I think they sometimes behave in a way, in a kind of tribal way, and with the singing and chanting and so on, which is very like going to church. I think probably they're not conscious of it being a worshipful activity, but it certainly follows some of the same human traits. There's no doubt about that.
2: So we worship at the altar of sport and we practice rituals that wouldn't look out of place in a spiritual setting. And
6: I've just realised that the word ritual comes from the word spiritual.
2: Do you think that deep down we all need to believe in, in something? So whether it is, you know, a religion yeah, I or...
4: Think, no, I think we are. I think human, people, human beings are made in the image of God. And therefore there is a you know there is an empty space in our lives which is only filled by a relationship with the living God so yeah I know I do think that there is a there is a inbuilt um, inclination to worship yeah I do
2: and and you could see how that would for some people that might be sport rather than that yeah God. yeah
4: absolutely no that's what I say it's idolatry it always has been I mean there are false gods of all sorts you know people worship all sorts of things anything that becomes central in your life is a replacement for god and if it's not the true god then it's a false god
6: uh, other faiths are available
2: this is what talk sport presenter danny kelly said when i talked to him about sport and religion one of the people we've spoken yeah. to for this show is, is a retired priest he played first class cricket and uh, worked with the england cricket team and we talked to him about the spirituality of sport he obviously as a religious man saw them very separate but for me you know I don't have any religion in my life so to me sport is a very spiritual thing do you feel that especially being in stadiums and you know with the emotions of it and everyone comes together and the the colors and the songs do you feel the sort of spiritual connection
3: to sport absolutely um the gentleman you were interviewed about this who is a man of the cloth uh, he could not admit it but he's got this slightly wrong um, and it is not a it is not a a coincidence um that as organized religion, certainly Christianity in this country, faded in the middle of the 20th century, um, so sport rose to take its place. And if you think about it, the the two things are extraordinarily similar. Large groups of people meet in often imposing but unfamiliar buildings. There is lights in the form of candles, floodlights. There is communal singing, whether it's hymns or um, uh, horrible, horrible songs about the opposition goalkeeper and there is a moment of all being in this thing together. And um, whether it's the climactic moments of ceremonies, religious ceremonies, or whether it's goal scoring moments, um, uh, or you know, the winning runs in a cricket match, um, it, it, there, it is clear, I mean, anybody with a, with a brain in their head can see the two things appeal to the same parts of human emotion. The need for community, the need for believing in something bigger than yourself, now whether that's god and with all respect to people of religious bent or whether it is that thing that we are all going to be in this in this uh, um, emotional event which will have hopefully an outcome um, that we can love i think it's it's almost about how you have to deliberately obscure the fact if you look at how similar the the uh, physical events are then it's almost impossible to say that they're not pulling on the same heartstrings and not satisfying the same need in human beings for a spiritual release, something that involves other than their own daily grind and gives them hope beyond their own narrow horizons. I think religion does do that, and I think sport does it in almost exactly the same way.
2: You're listening to The Dive on Talksport, and part two of does sport really matter?
6: So listening to Talk Sports' Danny Kelly and uh, Andrew Wingfield Digby, the parallels between sport and religion are there for all to see. But one similarity that wasn't mentioned was the one that I think underpins both. And that's hope. Because without hope that things will get better, neither sport nor religion ever work. Those who are religious or who put their faith in a sports team are forever hopeful that in the end everything will be better Even when this flies in the face of reality or the league table, everyone hopes that one day it will be their day. And even after a setback in your daily life or sporting, what's that phrase? There's always next week. There is always next week, but only as long as you keep believing and only if you retain hope.
2: So a few years ago, I was actually working on a project that sort of talked about this. I was trying to work out if you could go into churches and talk to people about their belief in in gods and, and all the different things that they believe, you know, within their religion. And then if you went to a football fan of like a team that was like on the bottom of, of, of the rungs, whether they would be the same. They're always hoping and always believing that this thing's going to happen. Because you talk to football fans on the way to games and they quite often think their team's going to win when all logic tells you the opposite. So I definitely believe in hope. And I think traditionally it's that belief in religion or sport that brings about and binds together communities, which is something I spoke to Talk Sports Andy Jacobs about. You know, me and John obviously became friends through through sport. You, you would have, I mean, I would think, tons of people. I mean, you and I have become mates and had dinner and talked about <laughs> yeah, cricket sure. before over sport. So how many friends do you think you picked up just because of your love of, the, of games?
4: Oh, a lot, an, an awful lot, I mean, Paul, for example, Paul Hawkesby, I do the show with. I don't think we'd ever got together if it wasn't for sport. Um, all my time doing fantasy football. And I've still got a very good friendship with Frank Skinner. That's through sport. And all my friends that I grew up with who love football and we still talk about football. And, and that's a big part of my life. I mean, yeah, I'm loads and loads of friends. I think often, I mean, I have two things in life. If you don't like sport and you're not funny, really, I can't be bothered with you, basically. <laughs> Oh, man.
6: It's it's true. I mean, I've been playing for the same five-a-side football team for 20 years. It goes back to when I was... Uh, some of my teammates are in their 40s now, and they were teenagers when we first played, when we first took to the field. That routine has kept our friendships alive because there are, we wouldn't see each other. You know, kids and work and geography and whatever gets in the way. Playing football has brought us together every single week for the last 20 years
2: this is Simon Hartley the founder of B world class a mental skills company that works directly with athletes and sporting teams across the world he joined us last week as well this time he talks about the links between sport and community we we as sports fans I mean you watch people just absolutely screaming at you know at, at a game or at a TV at a bar watching it sometimes uh, do we need that that release that sort of that you know the venting is there's a reason i assume that sports fans do that
5: yeah yeah i think so and you know if if you cobble together lots of these factors that we've already talked about the need for an escape and the need to belong the need to feel part of a tribe all those sorts of things that's what sport gives a lot of people the ability to either stand in a stadium or stand in a pub with other people and cheer at the same things you know be involved with them laugh at the same things you know that's 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 why comedy is also a, a great appeal for lots of people. It, it's to to have things in common with others as well. You know, all of these are psychologically really important to us because they've built been built into the fabric of modern life. And lots of people will, I think, struggle if they're not there.
2: And I think we all feel this way through sport, like one way or another. I want to tell you a story that has nothing to do with sport, just for a second. Charles Darwin's son, when he was at like a neighbor's house, he went over to the to the neighbor's kids and he said, "Where does your father keep his his stone collection?" Right, and uh, and the idea being that Charles Darwin had his stones all around the house and was always looking at them. So for that, it, that for that child was his normal life. You know, for me it was uh, you know um, playing cricket or being in a cricket club or watching cricket. You know, I ended up from from, from that community of the cricket club. We ended up playing golf together. My mum ended up you know doing a similar thing with her tennis club. You sort of build up these sort of, this uh, pseudo family, this wider family around these sports. And it could be supporting, you know, watching sport. It could be going to the local pub at the same time to watch the game every week, or it could be playing with the same kids that you have since you're a teenager like you have. It's that kind of incredible uh, community aspect that you get from sport that, you know, you end up belonging um, to this group of of misfits.
6: I've got, like many people listening, friends who I see regularly for the last 10, 20, 30 years. And I don't think I've ever seen them outside of the pub before a football game, at the <laughs> football game, or at the pub after a football game.
2: I think if you're you're in a crowd and you're watching sport, you're just part of something bigger. And People in this this show keep talking about the colours and the singing and the songs and all that sort of stuff. But it's also, at that point, your backf- background doesn't matter. Essentially, if you're a Harley Quinns fan, you're a Harley Quinns fan. It doesn't really matter what school you went to or where your mum was born or anything like that. And I think that sport doesn't just allow for that it's it's kind of built to build these communities from you know and it makes you feel like you belong and you know if your fans chant you know you chant and sometimes I find myself you know getting involved in a boo and it's because we're in a group you're in a group of thousands and you're all together you know it's a safe space and it you know it's it's like a pantomime but it, it matters just that little bit more and it really does I think matter and it's better than hoping that your political enemy dies in a fire or something it, it, it doesn't
6: mean as much we talk about community, but community is family, isn't it? A lot of my
2: sport career, whether it's been playing or watching um, or anything like that, it's been with my with my family. Like you, you were saying before about the Glory Hunter kids, I can't even imagine what it would have been like if I'd come home and told my dad I was going to support a different football club than him. Um, and, y- you know, you're already programming your son against Chelsea, which I admire, don't get me wrong.
6: And it's not just about life, you know, it's about death as well. One of the greatest moments in our life as Fulham fans is... Uh, recent Fulham fans would have been in Hamburg uh, back in 2010. Fulham reached a European Cup final. That's ridiculous. Fulham will never reach a European Cup final again. And they shouldn't have that season as well. It needed some near on miraculous, to lean back into religion for a second, results and performances to get there. But we did get there and we played Atletico Madrid and they were much better than us. And on the day they won the game and we lost the final. But I, I don't remember it for that necessarily, I remember it because my uncle, who'd been living in Spain for the last 10 years, that's the last time I saw him. You know, he died in his 50s, and that moment is the last time I saw him alive. And it was an amazing memory to have. That's how I remember my uncle speaking pidgin Spanish with some of the Atletico Madrid fans. All of the family together, uh, in a foreign country, in a town square, drinking beer, watching football, If you don't have sport in your life, then you don't have memories like that.
2: No, exactly. I I remember a very similar story going to see my grandfather not long before he passed. And him, like, trying to explain something in life to me, but by using a cricket anecdote about Greg Chappell um, failing in four one days in a, in a row. My wife as well, she has Sri Lankan parents. And one of the ways that she bonded with her father was when Sachin Tendulkar was incredible in one summer and he'd come home from work and she'd like fill him in. I mean, that's there's so much of, of sport and family that just sort of mixes together. And so if you look at everything we've talked about, so if you go through health um, you know, the mental aspect, the spiritual aspect, you know, family and community, all those sorts of things. It, it, it does actually start to explain why it matters. Like it distracts us from a darker, darker times, you know, it helps our body, which is especially good since in evolution, we only have to go down to Tesco's so and we don't have to hunt and kill a bison anymore. It, it allows us to vent. Uh, which works really well because most of us are frustrated about normal things in our life. And while we can't scream at our boss, we can at Jamie Vardy. It is a religion to us and it does have rituals and beliefs and songs and it brings us together no matter where we come from. You know, in a crowd, we're all just a fan and and it's something that we can share with, with, with people we love. And if that's the case, then it does actually matter. But even saying all of that, there's actually even more proof that sport plays a larger, more important role in society than I think we imagined, especially when we started these episodes. Dr. Stephen Taylor is the lead lecturer in psychology at Leeds University. So a few years ago, I was in India for a World Cup game um, and they were playing Pakistan. And you had major politicians from both sides and a lot of pomp and ceremony. And I remember thinking at the time, these two are almost perpetually close to being at war. And yet, mm. because of sport, you've, you've got you know foreign dignitaries in the one ground together watching a game. It, it's, it clearly means that sport has this ability to bring people together uh, in a way that other things don't.
8: Well, h- historians often say that there's been a period of the long peace for the last 75 or 80 years since the Second World War when there has been no major international conflict and when all kinds of conflicts have been at, at a lesser scale than in previous centuries. It may not seem like it when we watch the news, but that is a, you know, that's, that's been proven to be the case. And I think that the, uh, the popularity of sport is one reason for that, that it provides a kind of an alternative setting for competition, for aggression, kind of ritualized, uh, anger and so forth. And also a sense of identity. You know, in previous centuries, warfare was about nationalism and a sense of, national identity, I think nowadays people gain that from sport, particularly, you know, countries like India and Pakistan with cricket, their national identity is tied up with sport. And if it wasn't, it would maybe be tied up with, um, you know, with uh, warfare.
6: Yeah, I'm not quite sure about that, to be honest with you. I think that when I watch Pakistan and India play cricket, it's usually an indication that, that the diplomacy between the two countries has got to a point where they can play sport. I don't think of it as being the other way around.
2: Okay, here's why I disagree with that. That game was originally supposed to happen in the north of India and rebels up there basically said that they were going to dig up the pitch. Um, They didn't want that game to go ahead. There was terrorism, threats and all sorts of things going on with that original game. And then eventually the game did go ahead in Kolkata with a full crowd and there were dignitaries there. To me, it felt like there was a breakthrough that happened because of sport that without... That cricket game, I just don't think would have happened. You're listening to The Dive on TalkSport with Jared Kimber and John Norman.
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
1: this episode of the Talksport daily is brought to you by enterprise rent a car planning to hire or share a car or van enterprise is there every step of the way whenever and wherever you need a vehicle and whatever it's for enterprise can help With over 450 locations across the UK, they're just around the corner. Whether you need a weekend rental, a holiday hire, a replacement car, or you're planning a business trip, home or away, Enterprise are there to help. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. Just before the break, you heard John and I
2: disagreeing on Professor Stephen Taylor's take on the fact that war has been replaced by sport. But he did go on to talk about it a little bit more you know there's a obviously a fairly big cliche that people say you know war minus the shooting is what they say for sport so you do see direct parallels
8: there yeah there was a there was a famous psychologist called william james an american psychologist and in 1910 he wrote a famous essay called the moral equivalent of war and he he talked about all the devastation which warfare has caused throughout history but he also talked about the strange appeal that warfare has for human beings at that time you know countries were perpetually at war and he said that you a know, warfare provided a national identity. It gave people a common purpose, a feeling of community. And also, on a more individual level, it made pe- gave people a sense of heroism and loyalty and altruism and those kind of positive psychological characteristics. Uh, but he, what he was saying was that we need a moral equivalent of war. We need an activity which provides the same kind of psychological effects of war, you know, the same kind of uh, national identity, the same kind of heroic Noble qualities that people would feel in battle, but we need uh, we need that without all the devastation and destruction and all the death which warfare causes. And um, so William James himself didn't mention sport, but I think sport has become the moral equivalent of war. It's become an alternative for war, provides the same kind of psychological effects as war used to in previous centuries.
6: Well, I dread to think how many countries would currently be getting bombed by America if they didn't have the 49ers playing the Bengals every other week or baseball or ice hockey or whatever, uh, because it doesn't seem to have stopped uh, America. And there's something else as well. It's not the common man that chooses to go to war, is it? It's the common man that has to fight the war. It's usually... The people who own the country, who stand to make uh, either political or financial gain that decide war happens. So I can't quite see it, to be honest. I
2: completely disagree with almost everything you said there. Um, But I also disagree with some of the things from Professor Taylor, like when sport actually became big. You said the last 75 to 80 years, there's been less conflicts in the world from World War II sort of onwards. And if you have a look, that's also when the rise of sport has happened. Obviously, sport was around before then and certain sports have been around for a long time. But it didn't really become a massive part of society until really, you know, after World War II.
8: That's true. I mean, after World War I, it started to become popular. You know, the first Olympics was after World War One, I, I think. And I think there was maybe a conscious attempt I mean, World War I was such an incredibly catastrophic war that I think there was a conscious attempt by some governments to create an alternative to warfare. I think people instinctively knew that they didn't want to fight any more wars and they became more involved with sport. Football became to, began to be popular around that time. But I think, you know, it's definitely since the Second World War, sports has become so popular. And it's also created a lot of interaction between different nations. And that's important too, because the more interaction there is between nations, the less potential there is for conflict. Well, a lot of that does
6: make sense, apart from the bit about the first Olympics being after World War One. But at the end of the day, I can see why sport would enable or prevent violence between people who are living in the same area, but I still can't quite see how it would stop violence between people who have never met each other.
2: Once you, once you have international sport and it becomes a major part and there are international relationships involved with that and we have to stop for certain things, the world does change. Before then, none of that really happened. All sport before that was local. So you didn't have to worry about it. International sport really doesn't start existing uh, up until maybe the nineteen late 1920s, early 1930s. And since then, it's been a huge thing. So it has changed. But your point about local stuff, I think, is really, really accurate. And Professor Taylor talks about that.
8: In the second half of the 19th century, Manchester, like some other big British cities, was totally overrun by by gangs about a third of all hospital admissions around that time were due to gang violence, like stabbings or other kind of facial injuries. You know, a lot of pedestrians were scared to go out in the city centre because there was a danger of being attacked. And that went on until roughly until about the 1890s. You know, people were, were just generally living in fear of these gangs. But there were a, there were a couple of enterprising Victorian guys who realised that the violence was being caused by young people, mostly young men, who didn't really have anything to do. You know, they, they were, they were, they had Friday nights, Saturday nights where there's basically no activities, nowhere for them to go. So they'd start fights to, to gain some kind of excitement and they join gangs as a way of gaining some kind of identity. So they decided to set up sports clubs or lads clubs as they were called in those days, you know, Salford lads clubs was one of the first ones. And they began to, to gather the, the kids together at these clubs. And they taught them sports. They taught them boxing. They taught them football. So football clubs began to form. I mean, this was, of course, this was the time when Manchester's two great football clubs were formed, Man City and Man United and around this time. So people began to follow the football clubs and they also began to play sports themselves. So almost immediately, once those clubs had formed, once people began to follow the, the, the teams, Man City, and Man United, and once they began to play sports themselves, Almost immediately, gang violence began to disappear, and it was quite remarkable how quickly it did disappear. So, and that was largely because people were—they had a sense, new sense of identity, they had new activities in their lives, they had an outlet for their feelings of frustration, aggression, and competition. So, that's a very—it's a very graphic example of the the power of sports
6: having something to do and having something to base your life around will take you away from just hanging around on the streets and getting into trouble. And you see that in the present day, don't you? There is a direct correlation between street crime in any of the major urban areas in the UK and whether the kids have youth centres or football fields or whatever it is to take up their time. So yeah, I can absolutely see what he's saying.
2: Yeah, and I, I can tell you this that police departments around the world also know about this and try and uh try and facilitate sporting events quite a lot. So I think it was I think it might have started with basketball in New York when the police started just making tournaments they knew that the kids were already playing basketball but what they wanted was was a structure so that they had to go and play you know one or two days a week um and then when when after september 11 they did a similar thing in new york with cricket the police new york uh, nypd um started looking at bringing cricket tournaments in for the same reason they just wanted those those guys that have something better to be doing with their time rather than, you know, staying online and looking at bad websites and all those sorts of things. So it, it makes a lot of sense uh, that we're talking about.
6: Look, we've all seen Rocky. <laughs> we know how um, sport can lead you away from a life of crime, but there must be some other things that, that Steve brings in.
2: And obviously, other things will have affected the, you know, the, the drop in wars and the drop in conflicts. Uh, free trade's another one that gets talked about a lot. But I was assuming that sport sort of has a, a an element of free free trade within it, especially if you're, you know, trying to organise a football game w- with someone else as well.
8: That's true. Yeah, uh, it's it's a lot to do with interaction. You know, um, warfare is largely to do with isolation and a feeling of uh, opposition to people who are different from you. It's about otherness, really. You know, if you have two groups who have a sense of otherness, a sense of difference, and there's very little interaction between them, then there is potential for conflict. And often one group will scape out the other group for their own problems. And that, that gives more potential for conflict. But the more interaction there is between groups and the more direct contact there is, then the sense of otherness begins to fade away. There's a the realization that, you know in reality, people are no different. People of one group are actually no different to any other groups. And you know that that the potential for warfare begins to fade away. And I think the other thing to
2: remember is almost everyone else in this episode makes their their money um, off sport. You know so you know we we're all part of the industry, so of course we're going to think that that sport matters. Uh, but Professor Steven Taylor is not like that and I mean, you can tell by the fact he doesn't know when the Olympics start that he's not the same sort of level of sports nerd that the rest of us are. So I asked him if sport makes the world a better place.
8: I would say so. I mean, obviously, sport has led to some difficulties. It's led to, you know, firms and hooliganism. But I think that the violence which sport has generated is much less you know, than the violence which sport has alleviated. I think, um, you know, it is a big factor, a big factor in the decline of conflicts over the last 70 or 80 years. And on a more sort of communal level, it's a big factor in the decline of uh, gang violence in cities like Manchester.
6: So essentially, sport has given violence more of a structured outlet, um, but at the same time also giving people an opportunity to do other things with their time, maybe to uh, get the uh, pent-up frustrations out of their system. Allow people who maybe feel that they've got no voice have a voice, a, a, an area in their lives where they can succeed and show off and showcase their talents. It's given uh, people a, a different banner. To march behind, um, instead of uh, nationalism over borders, it's more about uh, trying to beat your neighbours or Im- impress your neighbours.
2: Like with a lot of science, I think there needs to be more investigation into this. But I think the basic premise makes a lot of sense to me on a local level, but also on an international level. You got to remember, before before World War Two, we weren't even really living in that much of an international society. You you know, you didn't even know if you were from Europe, you didn't really know much about South America, and and the world has changed now. Now you have a a very strong opinion on footballers from South America. You're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. I'm Jared Kimber. With me is John Norman. So far, we've talked about so many different aspects of sport, but we haven't talked about betting. And that's often because it is a sort of a more hidden part of sport. So I found an expert called Dan Moore who's worked in the gambling industry for a long time and he sort of talked us through a few different
7: things about sports gambling.
2: I'm going to start with the most basic question, Dan, is uh, why people gamble?
7: People have gambled for millennia in pretty much every society that's ever been studied as evidence of gambling. There have been archaeological digs in Mesopotamia going back 3,000 years where people have found uh, dice for gambling. In, in a lot of societies, gambling is bound up with divination in the early years, because we find not knowing what's going to happen next to be rather disconcerting. If we can attempt to peer into the future, it makes us feel a bit more relaxed about what's going on. And gambling is a recreational offshoot of this, this desire that we all have to, to try to predict what's coming next. Some people gamble to win money, most most actually don't. Most people understand that when you gamble, you're unlikely to end up with more than you started with. But people gamble because uh, they're bored, they're for time, uh, because it's a mental challenge, uh, because it's exciting some people gamble like they get a buzz when they win uh, some people gamble just because it's what their mates do and it's something to be sociable so there's, there's no one single reason why people gamble but we do know that it's something that seems to be inherently human
6: I've been really aware over the last five ten years just how synonymous how linked gambling has become to the Uh, sporting experience they they seem to be indelibly linked um, in ways that never saw 20-30 years certainly when I was a kid growing up there was a couple of people who used to have a flutter I'm not sure if they use that terminology in Australia Um, and when the Grand National came around people used to do a sweepstake that's about it nowadays it's not an uncommon experience to be sitting on the train on the way into work and overhearing conversations between young predominantly boys talking about minutiae of sporting odds to hear what Dan had to say that the idea behind gambling is actually more of a mental process in terms of predicting the future as opposed to winning or losing money I've never ever heard that theory said before
2: yeah, I, I, I was kind of flabbergasted, but I was also flabbergasted by the fact that he said that it was um, $15 billion uh, last year in the UK people gambled. And that's not all sports betting, obviously. Although a lot of it was sports betting, a lot of it is specifically sports betting on football. But that's you know everything from bingo and everything. That's that seems like a lot of money to me. And it's really interesting that it's taken us this long in this you know in this series to even get to betting. It's such a major part, but it's so uh, I'm going to use the term you know it's on the down low. Like finding a betting shop, they're, they're not the same. Like I come from Melbourne, where gambling is ever. You can't walk into
6: Melbourne without gambling being in your face. I can't think of too many industries where the advertising and imagery surrounding what is on sale, the product, is so separate and so different from the reality. I don't know, I don't know too many happy gamblers. Do you? No, and also
2: the only one I can think of is: Do you remember in the nineties you'd have an ad for like you know Coke or Sprite or something, and everyone would be running around dancing? And then no, and no one ever does that. But gambling's kind of always been like that. Like I remember the first time I went into the bookies, and you know, to, to place a bet, and I was probably 15, 16 you know, completely underage, uh, doing it. It's the saddest place on earth at times, isn't it? It it is so weird. And then you you see those ads that the gambling companies put out, and it's all the lads out on the town having fun, and I'm just like, that has not been my experience with betting on sport.
6: Look, I'm going to be frank about this. I spoke last week about selling a rather standing on the Hammersmith uh, end, uh, listening to a guy who'd bet money on Fulham to win 3-0 at half-time. Fulham were winning 3-0 at half-time and so he spent the rest of his uh, time hoping his own team didn't score a goal. I have consciously made a decision, apart from a flutter here and there on the Grand National, I just don't bet on sport because I think the moment you start betting on sport, actually it takes away some of the reason you got into it in the first place it actually detracts from the spectacle in some regard I think people who bet on sport now are secretly bored of sport and the only way they can get any enthusiasm or enjoyment from watching the game that they grew up loving that they've just got bored watching because it's saturated coverage and it's what they do and they don't know what else to do is that they bet money that they can't afford to lose on it I think actually betting is unfortunately so indelibly linked to sport but I think it ruins sport.
2: You know, if you look at betting fans and fantasy sports fans, they're almost a completely different breed of sports fans at a certain point. They, they, I think they look at the game differently, they react to it differently, and I think they get different things out of it. I don't know if your boredom, you, your boredom thing is completely accurate, but I think they are looking for maybe that next level, that next level of dopamine as, as we've talked about before. But there is a different breed of sports fan that, that prefers to bet. And it's never been something for me either. I just... It it doesn't get to me um, the same way it does, but maybe maybe when I'm bored, I should be doing it more often. Uh, if you can lend me, a, you know, a twenty, um, I'll when <laughs> when sports back, starts back up, you know, I'll I'll see what I, I'll see if I can turn that into a a crisp twenty two
6: pounds. Look, you either like competition or you don't, and I think we both love competition, and it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, you either buy into the myth of competition or whether it really matters, or you don't.
2: John, I think at the end of the day, we have to be honest here. We are two men who have watched professional axe throwing together.
6: Mate, the next night, we watch people throwing oversized hacky sacks into a hole cut into a piece of wood for an hour. Yeah. So what he's going to try to do is hit this back lip and then
1: cause this bag to go off while the airmail goes in. One of the most difficult shots in Cornhole. Dennis.
4: Goodness! Oh my word.
1: Oh my word. This wouldn't even be on the mind of an elementary player. Wow. Scott Phillips just looked at Damon Dennis and said, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen.
6: That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Did you hear that? The Ooh. coolest thing I've ever seen. Before that day, I honestly thought
2: cornholing was like a sexual thing that Americans, like it was, it was covering for something. I had no idea that it was a sport and that it was a thing. Uh, but that was a great hour. But it's not just that. I know you and I have had this conversation before, so I'm sure this is true. I watch um, America's Top Model occasionally with my wife. I don't know if it's still on, but it feels like I am always watching it, even if it's not still around. And I complain when my wife puts it on. I, I really, I, you know, I get quite upset. You know, why are you putting this on? By the end of the episode, if uh, what's her name, the the big supermodel woman, if she picks the don't r- ask me, <laughs> if she picks the wrong winner, I am furious. I am beside myself. That sort of whole thing of of competitiveness, I can't turn it off. I need, the correct person has to be picked. Why are you picking the other woman, Tyra Banks? (laughs) And, And I think, you know, that's also brings us back nicely to what we're missing at the moment. I mean, look at all the different things that we have, we've talked about. We've talked about, you know, communities and families. We've talked about psychology and dopamines, fitness uh, re, you know, religion, spirituality, and all this, but it's the, it's that sort of contest that we're that we're looking for all the time. So there was this clip that I found online when we, I was doing research for this. I think it was something along the lines of why intellectuals hate sport. Or, and and in it, the, this guy was saying, look, you can make a lot of arguments that sport doesn't matter, but essentially, once hundreds of thousands or millions of people decide that something matters, it matters. It matters because it's a community. It matters because because it matters to our family. It's a distraction. You know, a dopamine hit. All of those things, even if they're a myth, there's a certain point when we, if we all buy into this myth, it actually means something. And it ends up that it is a spiritual thing that we're all involved in. Even if we still know that that person hitting that white ball 20
6: meters further than the other one doesn't actually matter. It does matter to us at that time. Over the last week, I've been thinking a lot about last week's show, about the last time I saw my uncle, uh, and it was at a Fulham game in Germany. And it started to make me think, how many other moments in my life and how many other moments in everyone listening to this life are so linked to sport? And when I thought about it, I realised that not only was the last time I saw my uncle alive at a game of football, I wouldn't have met my wife if I hadn't had travelled to Australia to watch The Ashes. I met her straight afterwards. And if sport was to never, ever come back, you're never, ever going to be able to take those moments and those memories away from people like me and you. We wouldn't be doing this show if it wasn't for sport because we wouldn't have met at the Wacker back in 2010. So yes, sport absolutely does matter, Um, not just to the people who follow it, but to everyone, because as you say, once it becomes the majority behind enjoying it, then it doesn't matter if you don't like sport, it still matters. I, I could not agree more
2: with that. And I still feel ridiculous in the morning when I wake up and I look at my mobile phone. Um, you know, and I'm looking for the overnight sports results and sports news and all that sort of stuff. And I feel like just such just such a fool um, for, for, you know, being so involved with sport that I still need it to this point. But everything that it has given me in my life, you know, you talk about meeting your wife. I went, met my wife through sport as well. And every availability from building a relationship with my father all the way through to the friendship groups that I have today. It, it is everything to me. And I think we are 100% right to be mourning its loss a little bit and to feel a little bit lost as human beings and to be watching marble races and all those sorts of things and, you know, rating the best Fulham shirts from, you know, 1987 and all those things that are, are ridiculous. And I still feel silly as an as a adult who knows about politics and the world when I look at the back page of the, the paper before the front page. But there's a reason why I do all this. And so we are right right now... To be thinking to ourselves, we are missing something important because it is important to us. There is no argument around that. We are missing something. And so that's it. We have come to the end of our first question on the dive. It's taken two weeks to get there and I had a lot of arguing between me and John at times, but I hope you feel like we've answered it. Does sport really matter? Yes. Yes, it does. Next week, we're going on to the age of sports documentaries. Almost everyone in the UK has been watching The Last Dance, despite the fact that almost no one in the UK likes basketball. What is it about sports documentaries that gets to us so much? That's what we'll be discussing next week. You're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. I'm Jared Kimber, and with me was John Norman.